for British politics starts today, but where does Theresa May stand on defence? The dust settles after the Iraq inquiry. Tony Blair talks to the troops for the first time. And we speak to the first service complaints ombudsman. The majority of complaints that we receive are not, in fact, around bullying, harassment and discrimination. The majority that we received are around terms and conditions of employment. It is Theresa May's first full day as Prime Minister and her initial job has been to finalise a thorough and radical cabinet reshuffle with one of the notable exceptions being Michael Fallon who stays on as Defence Secretary. Well we're joined now by a correspondent in Westminster, James Hurst. Hello James. Before we talk about the new guard, let's look back at David Cameron and his legacy. It didn't quite end how he wanted it to, did no, it? No, absolutely not because he would have wanted a few more years in Downing Street and of course nobody in that kind of position wants to go with business unfinished and I think for David Cameron some of the unfinished business relates to defence you know he would have hoped that Afghanistan might have been a slightly more stable place by this point whereas he's actually just before leaving uh, announced that there's going to be 50 extra British troops going there. The concerns about the state for example of Libya I mean he, Libya has been one of his m m big decisions uh, on the foreign affairs stage he and, uh, and uh, Nicolas Sarkozy led on the intervention in Libya and there are, there are arguments that you know that intervention led to the rise of Daesh in Libya. I think it, that is one of the things that David Cameron would have liked to have still had a, a, a hand on the tiller about the, delivering what he would see as the, the final analysis of that. You mentioned Afghanistan and Libya. In military terms, how will he be remembered? I think he will probably be remembered as uh, someone who was a, a cautious interventionist and, of course, inevitably had the history of Iraq hanging over him. I think, you know, from the point of view of the armed forces, he will be remembered as somebody who did a huge shake-up, a very painful shake-up, but that perhaps, you know, in, in towards the end of his term, you did see stability, you did start to see a slight rise in defence spending again, uh, and, you know, some of that new promised equipment beginning to come on stream. This is uh, what uh, the, the sort of analysis I put yesterday to uh, a man who was a pretty much Britain's top man in, in NATO for much of David Cameron's time, General Sir Richard Sheriff. Well, if you look at the you know, look at the balance sheet, yes, you highlight equipment uh, enhancements such as the aircraft carrier, the decision on Scout for the Army, and I've no doubt there are many others as well. Uh, I think also I'd also pick up the um, the military covenant too. Don't forget the military covenant of 20, 2011, which which was a which, which does demonstrate a, a degree of commitment by our political leadership to the armed forces. Whether that has been played out across society is a different matter. Perhaps it needs more oomph to make it happen. But I'm afraid, I think, overall, uh, there's no question that the British armed forces are in a weaker place than they were back in 2010. You've only got to look at the 2010 Defence Review, the 
the, uh, the cutting down of the size of the regular army by, by 20,000. Uh, the jury, I'm afraid, is still out over the issue of reservists and the question of whether 30,000 reservists could be... I mean, I just don't think that's going to ever, ever come to fruition. So I'm afraid we've seen significant weakening of Britain's armed forces um, in the Cameron pre- years of the Cameron Premiership. Uh, and that has sent a signal of Britain again across, across our allies and, and, and across the world. Well, also joining us today is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, let's look at the new Prime Minister. What sort of Prime Minister will she be and how will she deal with defence? Well, the first thing is that she has this great experience uh, in the Home Office. And the Home Office gives you, to some extent, an idea of those things that that bother the nation as a whole, including security. Uh, But also, uh, the fact that it's sort of home defence, MI5 and police and the services uh, seem to forget that this is a, a has been very much a European thing and so she's got a much better idea of how to run things on a grander scale and things that she can't actually touch things that she can't actually say you will do this because it involves other things so you know it's the it's a so-called steady pair of hands although at the moment mm. I mean with the appointment of uh, uh, of the new foreign secretary there's the, some people are wondering whether in fact that wisdom comes her way so easily. That said, that said, James, um, she's decided to keep Michael Fallon as Defence Secretary. Why? I think you know it is the continuity reappointment, and I think it's significant that it's Defence because uh, it sends a message to the world uh, and to our partners that they shouldn't worry about a. a a sudden change of tack on defence, a change of tack on commitments to operations around the world, a a change of tack on diplomatic strategy. And as Christopher just mentioned, Boris Johnson, that has startled the horses. It's amused some horses as well. Um, But I think that it was very deliberate to do it on the first night To, mm. to send this message of continuity on, on defence. Yes, but James, when, when uh, Lady Cabell uh, said don't sort of frighten the horses, she had something entirely different uh, in mind. Um, listen, there, there is something to be said here. Uh, for example, uh, the defence sector is staying there because there was no need to move him. If you start doing the, the jigsaw puzzle or the chessboard or whatever you like to call it, of Whitehall, uh, you can't move everybody, otherwise you have a hole is where you started in the first place. Absolutely no need to move him, unless you need to move him to somewhere else. And there's only one other place he might have gone, apparently, uh, and, and that was the, uh, the Home Office. So mm. you need to do that. But uh, let me tell you just one particular thing where, where David Cameron and his whole Cabinet team, but especially David Cameron and the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary, failed miserably. And you have just been talking to the very man that this would involve, uh, General Sheriff. General Sheriff should have been pulled in to become Chief of Defence Staff and wasn't and was, was, was put out to the binary of, of, of Deputy Sakure. And the reason for that is that what they failed to do, especially after two defence reviews, they failed to look mm. for the inspiration of why you have defence reviews, of the jobs that you have to do, the ambitions you have uh, as a nation and the way you pick people. And so what people on the ground Mm. would have said to you, what they failed to do was go elsewhere other than the top level of the chiefs of staff. Mm. Uh, uh, James, um, just before you go, uh, given the fact the Defence Secretary is staying on, very different kind of Prime Minister he'll be working to, will it be business as usual for Mr Fallon? 
I mean, it, it, to an extent, it's, it's guesswork, but all the signals are business as usual. Bear in mind that uh, Theresa May knows him, knows his work very well through Cabinet, through the National Security Council. You can look at things like the London 2012 Olympics and the, the military contribution to security there. So it, it all suggests she wants to keep defence going in the same direction. The other important thing is um, Philip Hammond, the new Chancellor, has said there will be no emergency budget. He'll study things uh, carefully over the mm. summer, which is very much his modus operandi. There'll be an autumn statement as normal. Uh, so again, there's no I- immediate implication of sort of any kind of financial shake-up that could affect defence. Alright, James Hurston, Westminster, thank you. Um, Christopher, uh, another person starting on a job this week, the, the new Chief of the Air Staff, Air Chief Marshal Sir Stephen Hillier. Uh, he comes with an impressive CV, doesn't he? He's a good man. A good man. Well, of course, he's, you get that sort of height. But he is a GR4 pilot mm-hmm. uh, and he also a QFI which is they don't necessarily go, go together 3,500 flying hours I read uh, they went a long way those planes <laughs> uh, but he'd been doing it I mean he'd been doing it since Gulf War 1 and his um, I think the, big, the biggest thing he brings to this job is look at his previous job, which was uh, Deputy Chief of the Defence Staff uh, and his role there was military capability and coming to the job now, he can sit in the Chiefs of Staff uh, corridor and say, now listen, you want us to do this, this is our ability to do it. And when you've got capability, you then look at the other side's capabilities. And therefore, you then go to the intelligence people and say, right, they're their capabilities, uh, these are their intentions, can we judge that? And they say, no, you can't do that. Therefore, you come back and say, what are our capabilities of doing something about it? And that's what he's been doing for mm. the past two and a half years. Very valuable appointment. Now, the uh, first big test for the new Prime Minister, Theresa May, will come on Monday, when MPs will decide whether to replace the nuclear sub- Marines that carry Trident. A vote in favour of renewing the deterrent could be the catalyst for a second Scottish independence referma- referendum, it's claimed. The SNP's defence spokesman, the MP Brendan O'Hara, says public opinion in Scotland is against replacing it. Scotland overwhelmingly voted for parties in May who stood against the renewal of Trident, and yet we will have Trident if the, it passes on Monday, foisted upon us by a government we did not elect. This very well could be a catalyst uh, in pushing towards another referendum along with the the Brexit vote. Well, Labour MPs have a free vote on the issue. Here's Shadow Defence Secretary Clive Lewis. Well, we had a Shadow Cabinet meeting today. We discussed with the whips and those are the people who enforce a vote and we've uh, agreed collectively and we're being quite honest um, that we will be having a non-whipped vote. Uh, Christopher, there's been a bit of confusion about exactly what's being replaced. Yeah, and don't listen to, uh, unless you examine very carefully what some of the MPs are saying, especially the Scottish MPs, are saying that we don't want Trident. It's not what they're hearing at all. In the in the seven public opinion polls that have taken place since January the 16th this year, uh, 20%, 20%, that's all, have said no to the triumph, by which they actually mean the warhead. Because mm, the um, boats are valued that's in right, Scotland. That's right. Well, you know, there's, there's a lot of work uh, going in it. And this is what you've really got to uh, hammer down to. On Monday, there is to be a vote. And the vote is on the principle of the having boats at sea constantly, Right. That is nothing to do with the warheads. The and six, that means you have to have four boats. You have to have four. Well, you can have three, but, I mean, whether you have three or four, you've taken the principle of actually renewing the boats. Let us... It's just a couple of things which people probably don't realise. The decision to renew 
Uh, Trident is a war hidden. In fact, Trident is the body of the missile which is owned by the Americans. There are 58 of them in Georgia, in America, and we go and collect some and put them in our submarines. We make the warheads. The warheads are not trident. So, right, there's the confusion. Now, the important thing is this. Um, if you go back to uh, 1980, that was when the decision was taken to renew the nuclear deterrent. 1980. Um, if you go back to... So just to bring, us, bring us to Monday, though, what, what exactly will be voted on exact the on principle, Monday? The principle of having a successor, i.e. The, the, the Vanguard, the four Vanguard submarines, will be replaced. The principle to replace them. Not the principle, although that's how it will be argued, not the principle to replace a nuclear warhead and a nuclear deterrent. And the present warheads that we've got and the present missiles we've got, we have already have an agreement that they will go on to the new, new nuclear boats, the nuclear-powered boats and the nuclear the vessels, the submarines themselves. The existing sub, uh, uh, missiles will go into those boats until the, the 2040s, mm. for another quarter of a century. So talking we're talking really about the, the principle of actually having a deterrent at sea. Mm. Well, one of David Cameron's last duties as Prime Minister was to attend the NATO summit last weekend in Poland. He announced a 500-strong battalion to Estonia and 150 to Poland and promised 3,000 troops would lead a quick reaction force next year. He also announced an extra 50 British Forces personnel to join the 450 who were already in Afghanistan. Got those numbers there? What else came out of the summit, Christopher? And the important thing, I think, of the summit, apart from the fact that, uh, as it turns out, it was David um, um, uh, David Cameron? Cameron's last one. <laughs> well, they so, easily, already, they so easily go, don't they? Um, <laughs> but it was also President Obama's last. The, the important thing is that this was the main summit since the last one. Do you remember in Wales um, where they set out the, the stall on how they would sustain the 2% defence mm. expenditure within NATO, that they recognised there was a danger of uh, a mistakes occurring, miscalculation, difficulty times with, with Putin's Russia. What they have really have done this time is examined how far they've got. All the things they promised, have they actually got there? And by and large, yes, they have actually got there. People rubbish NATO, and quite rightly so, in many, for, for many reasons. But that's that doesn't mean to say that it's not working. I think NATO is probably at the moment working as best it can. It's working as best it can in times when you haven't got any money, um, but you can actually maintain everything that you have got and use it. And then the, the sort of deployments that David uh, Cameron was uh, talking about shows that NATO itself can pull out of the, out of the hat many brigades to up, go up against the... If you like, these sort of incursions and also the, the perceived threats of Mr. Uh, of Mr. Putin's uh, armies on the, on the eastern flank. Well, just a reminder, you can subscribe to this programme as a podcast. Just search for BFBS SITREP. SITREP with Kate Still to come, the new woman in charge of service complaints tells us it's not all bullying and harassment. BFBS SITREP. Well, at last weekend's NATO summit in Warsaw, the outgoing Prime Minister David Cameron lifted the ban on women serving in frontline infantry roles in the armed forces. The move was recommended by the Chief of the General Staff, General Sir Nick Carter, after extensive research into the physiological risks women would face. Well, the ruling brings the UK in line with its major allies. But how will it work in practice? Hannah Bryce is Assistant Head of International Security at Chatham House. Good to speak to you today, Hannah. There seems to be a lot uh, of 
of those implementing the change, a lot, lot to think about, starting with health risks. So are female soldiers more likely to injure themselves than men when you talk about the physiology? Good afternoon. Yes, I think uh, at the moment we're still waiting to get conclusive information on this. But the interim health report that was issued by the Army and MOD suggests that women are more prone to muscular skeletal injury. Um, but until women are actually serving on, on in those positions, it's going to be going to be hard to know exactly how vulnerable they are. And what about the cultural bar barriers? A lot of male soldiers may not be happy with this decision. Yeah, of course, that's going to be something that I think the leadership really need to tackle head on to make this a success. And I think it's going to call for very strong leadership from the top and in the middle management and to proactively engage with, with all the army to show that this is a decision that... Um, you know, it's an opportunity rather than a, than a problem to be fixed. Strong leadership. What are the practicalities? Well, I think, you know, it's a case of getting everyone to buy into the decision. And it is a significant cultural shift for the army. Um, but I think, you know, if you can uh, present this as something that's going to be operationally beneficial to the army, then then people will, will definitely support it. Do you get any idea as to what the take-up might be? Because Canada opened up this role in 1989 and it's only been like 2.4%, you wrote. Yes, it is um, it is a slow and incremental process, which is why it's great that we've made the change now. Uh, I think both uh, Australia and the US have, have sort of given five-year um, uh, lead-in times for it, so that it is very... Uh, gradual, so I don't think anyone needs to worry that there's going to be a sort of a sort of massive change to the to the army um, straight away. But I think over time we'll we'll see, hopefully see that the uptake by women will increase. And what about the recruitment process? Do you think it needs to change to incorporate women? Uh, uh, I do. Yeah, I think if you look at the figures, with just nine percent at the moment of of the army made up of women. There does need to be some targeting of women if it's going to be seen as an attractive uh, employment opportunity. All right, Hannah Bryce, good to talk to you. Thank you for your time today. MPs continue debating Sir John Chilcott's findings in the Iraq war inquiry. They're spending two days considering its findings. The Shadow Foreign Secretary, Emily Thornberry, told the Commons similar mistakes in operations are still being made. Well, Labour's Hilary Benn, who voted for military action in 2003, said he doesn't believe he was misled over the reasons for war 13 years ago. I do not think that we were misled or lied to and more importantly, nor does the Chilcot report conclude that. But we must all take our full share of the responsibility for that decision. And indeed, as we now know, the intelligence was wrong. Well, Tony Blair, who took us to war, may feel the release of the Iraq inquiry draws a line under the protests over that decision. But he could be mistaken. The former SNP leader, Alex Salmond, and the new Brexit minister, David Davis, are among those who want to table a motion of impeachment against the former prime minister. And many families of those killed still want Mr Blair to be tried as a war criminal. Well, I spoke to Mr Blair after the publication of the report. You put prime ministers in these positions to take decisions and to take them in what they believe to be the best interests of the country. Now, that's not to say those decisions are right. Mm. But you always want your prime ministers to be sitting in that seat of decision-making and doing what they think is right, because that's what you elect them to do and put them in those positions of responsibility to do. So 
I, I know I, there's nothing I can say that will satisfy those families that, that have lost their loved ones and, and believe that, that they, they were sent to war on a false basis. Although, by the way, the report completely disproves these allegations of deception or lies. And I know some of them will never forgive me for that. But I can't... I have to... Does that weigh on your mind? Of course it weighs on my mind. But it, it also weighs on my mind that if I'd taken the opposite decision, I would have taken a decision I didn't believe in, that I thought was wrong. I can't say what the consequences of that would have been. But I believe that they would have been worse than the situation we have today. So what do you say to those people about their, their children's or their brother's, their sister's contribution? What I say is that they did not make that contribution or sacrifice in vain. That was Tony Blair speaking to me following the release of Sir John Chilcott's conclusions in the Iraq inquiry last week. Uh, Christopher, do you think a line can now be drawn under the Iraq war? I think it's very likely it can be drawn under the uh, Iraq war. It'll never be drawn under, I'm afraid, uh, uh, Tony Blair. And that's because he is Tony Blair, and I think and is an easy target or whatever, and there is enough blame around still. I think what was interesting when he was talking to you about this, one got a sense that for the first time, that I'd heard him anyway, he was talking, he was very aware he was talking to uh, the armed forces. That's another thing, which nobody had done and nobody had asked him to do before. But it was also putting forward the fact that it wasn't just him sort of beefing up some intelligence report. It wasn't simply him being overpowered by the or overwhelmed by the uh, the Bush administration and the sense of the glamour of, of that peculiar Camelot. Um, and it could happen again. What we should what remember... What do you mean could happen again? Well, when you take out Chilcot, you could argue... Um, that there are the ways that we go to war, what we do during war, and what we do after war, or should be there. And if we, what those are at Staff College, will say, look, that's ha- what happens when you get a crisis. But the truth is that when you get a crisis, you respond to the crisis, not necessarily the last war that you fought. You may have, have trained to fight the last war yet again, but you, you, don't, you respond to the exact crisis. And that's where we get into the business, what we mentioned earlier on about NATO, of miscalculation. Mm. And things happen. And so exactly 1991, the first first Gulf War, you could have argued there was enough wrong in the first Gulf War for us not to have gone into the second Gulf War. Do you think um, Tony Blair has come out of this report better than expected? I think that Tony Blair didn't... I think that Tony Blair, if you look very carefully... And I don't want to spend, you know, sort of going back to the interview you had, but the way that he he spoke about it then, then yes, that Tony Blair did. That was the first time that I'd seen what the great reporter, Cyril Angel, used to say, see the eyes move. You watch the eyes and you can tell that he was far more comfortable with it. But Tony Blair will be forever blamed. It is the test match at Lord's is not going very well. Tony Blair will be blamed for that. They, these calls for impeachment, how likely are they to actually go anywhere? You can you can impeach. You can call for impeachment. If it's impeachment, it has to go through the House of Commons, and at the moment there's no, there, 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 there's no stomach for it. There are too many other things going on. What will happen, I really believe what will happen, is that the lawyers will tell the families, you cannot take this directly to the criminal court. Uh, oh, sorry, to the International Criminal Court at The Hague. What you can do though you can start uh, the, the legal process within your own country, within your own court um, and therefore it's something which will go on for a long long time, that's why Tony Blair will never be out of this one 
Have you ever been bullied or harassed in the armed forces? There may be a perception outside the military that it happens all the time, but the First Service Complaints Ombudsman says the reality is very different. Nicola Williams has been speaking to Tim Cooper. The majority of complaints that we receive are not, in fact, around bullying, harassment and discrimination. The majority of complaints, they are a significant minority, but the majority that we receive are around terms and conditions of employment. So, for example, someone is concerned about an adverse marking in their report, they're concerned about pay, promotions, career advancement, or being career fouled. Um, those are the complaints that we most commonly see. But bullying, harassment, and discrimination are a big part of our work, too. One of the problems of the past in the military is the way it's investigated itself going yes. back through the years. And although the chain of command is involved from what you're saying, mm -hmm. there is the option to come to you first. That's important, isn't it? Yes, I believe it is. Mm. Um, and if someone chooses to exercise that option, and many times that they, they do, the matter eventually does go to the in particular service for them to deal with first, because I think it's always right, and it's the principle of good practice amongst ombudsmen across the world, that the body complained against should be given the opportunity to put the matter right first. But there is always the option, if they are unhappy about that decision, ultimately to come back to our office again. Let's talk about diversity now. The, yes. the chief of the uh, general staff is quite avert, saying that he wants more diversity um, to reflect the whole of modern Britain. How do you feel about what many people perceive as the lack of diversity within the armed forces? Is there a lack of diversity? And if so, how can we address that? I think there is a lack of diversity. I think particularly at the very tops of the professions, there is. Um, there are two uh, aspects to this, to my mind. First of all, the lack of diversity at the top of the profession reflects the historic lack of diversity that there has always been. And so uh, as people come in at the junior ranks and rise up, then hopefully that will change. However, you can't wait forever for that to change. And there are things, matters that can be put in place right now, which I believe the services are putting in place. For example, any types of unconscious bias should be stamped out. And everyone is prone to unconscious bias. None of us are immune from that. And the other matter that might be given consideration is that for bodies that appoint people to the senior ranks of all the military, that they should look perhaps at the composition of those bodies, whether those bodies are diverse. If not, they could end up appointing in their own image. That was Nicola Williams, the Service Complaints Ombudsman, talking to Tim Cooper. Christopher Lee, do you think it's making a big difference, this position? No, not yet, but it w it, it's, going it to make, it's going to make a difference. Whether it makes a big one, that's up to the Army, that's up with the Armed Forces, that's up to Mr Fallon, the, the, the Continuing Defence Secretary. What is important is, the, is in the services themselves... Uh, if you get, for example, a private soldier's got a problem, and it doesn't have to be bullying, it can be anything. And the tradi traditional thing you do, you, the, the private talks to the corporal, the corporal talks to the sergeant, the sergeant talks to the... the uh, and it goes up the military way. If you step outside of that, mm. and it's rather like a civilian, if a civilian wants to get to the ombudsman, they have to go to the MP, they can't go direct to the ombudsman. But you're corrupting a military tradition of way of doing things, and I think that is the focus... The focus of the minister should be I mean, when you the Armed Minister for Armed Forces, not Secretary of State. How do we change this so people feel confident, even if they don't have to use it? I mean, when you, when you hear things like you heard in the news this week about the state of some quarters that people live in, 
I mean, it's staggering when you hear those kind of anecdotes. Sewage coming into the sitting room. Yeah, I mean, how can that still exist? Yeah, well, that exists because because the system is that all every single person in the armed forces is guaranteed accommodation, uh, but it doesn't. They don't have to guarantee what sort of accommodation. There's no money for that sort of thing. Now that is a separate problem, and the ombudsman says I can't do anything about it. Mm. Europe's biggest military parade has taken place today to mark Bastille Day. Four thousand forces, including military and police, have taken part. Is it something we should do in the UK? I don't mean Bastille Day, I mean a parade of this nature. Well, I think we ought to do Bastille Day as well. A UK Day. A UK Day. No longer UK UK Day. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'll tell you, Denmark and the United Kingdom are about the only countries in the world that don't have a national day. In the sort of way that, for example, Scotland has St Andrew's Day and Ireland has Patrick's, uh, etc. One of the oldest ones, apart from America... Um, is actually Afghanistan. And Afghanistan has its national day on the 19th of August. And they have a march like that, do they? They have a a march, uh, not on that scale, because there's a security problem. But it's it's to celebrate their independence from Britain (laughs) in 1919. (sighs) Forget the the recent uh, Afghan Mm. wars. But the important thing is identity. And it's the identity of being free from other countries. Now, when you consider that the United Kingdom, or Britain anyway, uh, at one time had had a population in the empire of 400 million, they all became independent. Hence all the independence days, hence all the national days. Is it going to happen? Get... Gonna happen? Uh, no, it won't happen. But we do have Trafalgar Day. Hmm. That's all right. Isn't you had it? to mention that, didn't you, on Busty Day? Well, that's all we have time for today. My thanks to all of our guests. Tell us what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to the show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. We're back next week. From me, Kate Chabot, thanks for listening. Bye bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. They thought Theresa May and